Welcome to Tales of Britain and Ireland. This is a podcast telling the stories, legends and folk tales of Britain and Ireland in no particular order. Presented by Graham and coming direct from South Yorkshire, each episode tells a story or selection of stories from all across these islands and throughout their history, followed by a short and decidedly inexpert discussion of the origin and themes of each tale. This episode we're launching straight into part two of The Enchanter of Pengesic, as the episode title suggests. Not that I'm one to tell you what to do, but I would advise not starting here. So if you haven't listened to the previous Enchanter episode, why not do that now, and if you enjoy it, come back and listen to this. But ultimately I can't stop you, so hell, do what you like. Let anarchy reign if that is your will. Now, this is the first ever three-parter we've done, which wasn't the original intention, but there just seemed to be so much to this story and it kind of went on and on. So, three episodes we've got. If you're listening to this as it's been released, then I'd like you to know that the next episode will be out in just a few days, and I really do mean that. If not, it's probably already up, so you can just listen to the whole thing. Why not? Knock yourself out. I'll try to do shorter stories for the next couple of episodes, so there's less time between them. Hopefully a three-parter is okay, but as always, do let me know what you think. Now we're almost ready to actually begin, but before we do so... If you listen to the previous episode, you might be left with some questions. For instance, question one. Didn't the prologue have an enchanter? A theme also suggested by the story's title, and yet so far, no enchanter has appeared. What gives? Two. Was calling the unnamed Middle Eastern country Agrabah actually a mistake, given the pre-existing baggage that comes with that name, and the controversy around the representation of Arabic lands in Aladdin, and less controversially, the fact that the other Agrabah is a city, not actually a country. And, question three, who were all the characters again, and what have they done? To which I reply respectively, question one, yes, there will be an enchanter. Maybe in the next episode. Question two, it's complicated, but I'm erring on the side of yes, it was a mistake, while still feeling that the kingdom in the story is about as close to a real medieval country as Agrabah is. So it's kind of a reasonable fit to convey that idea of eastern country we know nothing about. Question three. There's a lot to recap, so let's do another roll call of the Dramatis Persona so far. Lord Pengesic. All-round bad dude. Murdered his lover basically murdered his wife, did some wars in foreign parts in his youth, now lives alone apart from servants, who don't really count, in his eponymous castle in Cornwall. His child has been taken away from him because of him being awful, and he's scared to go outside because of vengeful ghosts. So he's getting old and angry, and generally having a well-deserved bad time of it. But a rich person kind of bad time, so fairly comfortable at it. The Ghost of the Sultana a phantom white hair, rabbit kind, not the kind that grows on your head. Well, not on my head, but in general. The hair is the spirit of Pengesic's murdered lover. And more importantly, she is the former rightful ruler of the Middle Eastern Kingdom of Agrabah. She haunted her murderer for a while, but after a run-in with the church, she's now lying low and waiting for prophecy to be fulfilled so she can reappear. Marek the son of Lord Pengesic, that one who was taken away as a baby. He was raised by the miller and his wife after Marek's mother died, and he's now a strapping young man of twenty and your classic hero with a thousand faces protagonist type. Bold, strong, noble, good, likes wrestling, runs his own lifeboat service with his foster brother, who is... Uther, the miller's biological son, Marek's best friend, pretty great but not as great as Marek. He's your typical second fiddle to the hero type sidekick, not particularly fleshed out as his own character. Basically, cardboard cut out of Marek, but without the magic ingredient, noble blood. Oof, there's a fair few of these. Right, Lady Godolphin. Awfully stereotypical, scheming woman, wants to unite her family and Pengesics to increase their land holdings, for she has 20 acres and he has 43. And also, because she fancies Marek. She's recently been rebuffed by Marek, maybe because she's quite evil, but also because she's old, like 25, 26, something hideous like that. We also have 
The Witch of Fradham. A witch, not one of the morally ambiguous kinds, or your local wise woman, or free love raw. Nope. Cackling evil, does dark magic, powerful, dangerous, horrible. Motivation, not entirely clear. She's a witch. She's kind of in the background of this story. What more do you need? Biffa, the niece of the aforementioned witch, and the chief lady-in-waiting for Lady Godolphin, and generally on pally terms with her evil aunt. Biffa acts as a go-between, offering plausible deniability for Lady Godolphin when Godolphin needs magic done. You know, when she needs a pep talk from Mira to curse her enemies with awful doom, or perhaps just some paracetamol. And finally, Pengesic and the Sultana's son. His name is unrevealed. He is rightful heir to the throne of Agrabah, but he's been raised these past 20 years by a kindly sea captain after his mother's murder. His whereabouts are currently unknown, and surely he's very unlikely to appear again in this tale. Whew. And let's take a moment for that to all sink in. And we're back in the story. One thing to clear up is the relationship between Marek and his father. Though he had been raised separately, there was never any secrecy as to his identity. So when he came of age, the danger the old man had posed to a young child was seen to have passed. And while Marek had no love of his bitter, scared father, neither did he fear him. And so, when his father's servants, eager for a more positive presence in their lives suggested that Marek take up residence in Pengesic Castle, neither man objected. The miller was proud to see his adopted son return to his birthright, and I'm sure benefited handsomely from the arrangement. So son and father inhabited the castle together. Their day-to-day familiarity and interactions were at the level of two strangers with different contagious diseases sharing a doctor's waiting room. And in such a manner, the days passed by. Now let's turn to the household of Lady Godolphin. Therein, Biffa has just presented to her mistress a filter. That's a love potion to you and I. Let's imagine it's all pink and full of clouds of glitter that swirl mesmerizingly when you shake the vial it's contained within. But that when a drop of this beautiful liquid is spilt, it hisses and spits and violently burns, because there's nothing like a strong visual metaphor. Lady Godolphin was probably cackling over it. Something that tends to develop in single women of her advanced age. This was sure to win her Marek's heart. The plan was thus. Biffa would drop round to Pengesic Castle on an errand from her lady. Maybe to talk about those vast tracts of land with the Lord and his son. She would get herself treated to a meal whilst there. And super subtly, avoiding any battle of wits type screw-ups, should apply the love potion to Marek's drink, have him drink it, and so have him fall madly in love with Lady Godolphin. Easy, right? Well, yes, actually. It all went off without a hitch. Marek downed his drink containing the potion, oblivious to its insidious contents. Now he would be ensnared. And yet, when Biffa mentioned her lady after the meal... Marek seemed no keener to meet with her than he had beforehand. He made excuses. Obvious ones. Er, I'm too busy collecting funds for the lifeboats. Basically all the time. Lifeboats are really expensive, you know. Oh, you meant this evening? No, I'm, sorry, too busy washing my lifeboat. Uh, No euphemism intended. Strange. Couldn't be that love potions didn't work. And so... They tried again, with powder in his food, tinctures in his wine, even crushed aphrodisiac in his foundation. But all to no avail. Marek still showed no interest in Lady Godolphin, and was much more interested in wrestling, hanging around with his close friend Uta, saving drowning sailors, and nursing them tenderly back to health. Now unfortunately this folktale was written down before the time when a preference for such activities might have carried unsubtle undertones. But 
You can have your own headcanon, right? Anyway, neither of the women wanted to go and complain about fit for purpose or quote the Consumer Rights Act, the Witch of Fradham. But Lady Godolphin wasn't a quitter, and she wanted those lands. I can imagine the scene. For nights on end, Biffa saying, What are we doing tonight, my lady? Same thing we do every night, Biffa. Trying to take over Pengesic Castle. So, if the potions wouldn't work, she decided on a different approach. If she couldn't have the son, well, the dad was unmarried, getting on a bit, and actually he owned all the land she wanted already. Was he reputedly an entirely repugnant human being? Yes. Did this stop Lady Godolphin? Goodness no. She wanted those lands. Lord Pengesic might have been surprised at the attention of the much younger woman, but he had little objection to it. In truth, he's going to be kind of sidelined in this story now. He was the big bad of the previous episode, but he's had his day, and he's now about to be but a pawn in the schemes of Lady Godolphin. And, quick as a flash, the happy couple were wed. Their lands were united, and Lady Godolphin looked forward to the time her scheme would be complete. The son she fully expected to have would inherit those lands. Which is not untypical for how evil female motivation works in a certain type of story. Be evil, get stuff, have son, have son, inherit your stuff. That's success, apparently. Now Lady Godolphin had soon moved into the large Pengesic castle, accompanied of course by her most trusted maid, Biffa. The happy new family sharing their home with the servants, who actually ran the place and don't count, and of course with Marek. You can imagine it was domestic bliss at its finest, and Lady Godolphin hated it. The marriage was far worse than she expected. The Lord really was both an awful person, and more to the point, a terribly frightened old boar who'd occasionally witter on about the olden days when he'd gone to war and apparently done something amazing. But he spent most of his time jumping in his own shadow. He was also a boar in another sense, and it soon became very apparent that he was unlikely to give her a son any time soon, which was real downer in those son-based plans that she had. And of course, Lady Godolphin still lusted after Marek who lived in the castle alongside them. This very stable arrangement lasted for, oof, perhaps a week, until circumstances conspired to ruin events. You see, Marek, despite desperately trying to avoid his new mother-in-law, well, he kept finding that he was spending more and more time in the castle, and less and less time with Uta, less and less time wrestling or on his lifeboats. At first, he wanted to pretend, but really, he knew absolutely why. The poor young man was besotted. He couldn't stop thinking about her. He wanted her. He needed her. He would take any chance to be in her presence. When she smiled at him, his heart turned over in his chest and he wanted to write poetry. Yes, Biffa. She'd had so many meals with him and his father before she moved in. And he'd known then that, to put it bluntly, he really fancied her. His love seemed to grow a little more intense after every meal, actually. But she'd gone away and he'd buried his feelings, got on with his intently heterosexual single life. But now she was here, in his own home and he was practically bursting with the need to see her, as young lovers are wont to be. Look, it's not actually in the story, but I think that he had a good conversation with his adoptive father, the miller. The older man sat him down, probably over a cider. The miller listened, then recounted tales of passion from his own youth, gave his foster son some wise and pertinent advice on love and relationships and heartbreak. And after the conversation... Watching him leave, the miller's own heart was warmed by the thought of young love and looking back on all the years that he'd been with his wife. When she came home tonight, he would do something special for her. And he would wish Marek well on the turbulent seas of romance. And so, buoyed up by this, 
Marrick got the courage to approach the woman he had, so mysteriously and completely, fallen in love with. And, perhaps to your surprise, Biffa absolutely accepted the proposition for a romantic walk out along the sands in the early evening. She worked out what had happened pretty quickly. The love potion had worked. They just failed to properly read the terms and conditions. And he was a handsome young man. And, well, it hadn't worked out for her mistress, but Lady Godolphin was married now. And it seemed a real shame to waste this opportunity. They'd spent a lot of time on those love potions, she rationalised. And at least this way, someone, namely her, was benefiting. So the new lovers took to the beach in, as the story puts it, an amorous dalliance. And if this was a film, we'd see the couple walking along happily, hand in hand, enchanted by each other. And then the focus of the camera would shift. The couple would blur, and the image would sharpen around a sand dune behind them. And as the view zoomed in, we would see that on top of that dune, clad all in black against the night sky, was Lady Godolphin. And as we got closer still, we could see that in her face, an expression of pure, murderous rage. We cut away briefly to a nighttime scene of storm-ravaged seas and a ship tossed by the waves. Men are scrambling to reef the sails, shouting to each other over the thunderous din of the rain and the wind. And then, from the top sail, there's a tremendous crack, and a figure falls into the water far below, clutching on to a piece of wood, and the ship is swept away from the fallen sailor. The scene goes black. And we cut back to Biffa, ascending the staircase to her room with rosy cheeks and a spring in her step. She swings open the door, all ready to fall back onto her bed with a contented sigh when Lady Godolphin emerges from the corner and with one swift motion slams her terrified maid against the wall and positions the tip of a knife against Biffa's throat. You thought you could get away with this. He's mine. I'll have the blood out of you this night. Whoa, whoa, whoa. It's not like that, Biffa floundered. It's just, well, I thought that if he trusted us, it might help our position. I could give a good word for you, and and you did say that you wanted me to get close to him, so uh, it would be easier to, to get him under our power. You did say that. Hmm. Surprisingly, Lady Godolphin appeared to buy the garbled, feeble excuse. Or at least she thought she had made a point, and wanted to keep Biffa around with her connection to the witch and knowledge of potions and poisons. She slowly withdrew her blade, pushed Biffa hard against the wall one more time, and then let her go. If your aunt's love potion had worked, we wouldn't be in this mess anyway. But no, I've had enough. It's too late anyway. I want him gone, and I want him gone now. I'll get a son one way or another, and he stands in the way of that. Yes, my lady. What can I do to help? You? Don't you think you've done quite enough already? Anyway... I've already done it. My plan is already in motion. And indeed it was. For after returning from the beach and before accosting Biffa, Lady Godolphin's mind had turned to revenge on the young man, for spurning her originally for his actions with Biffa. And so she had gone straight to her aged husband, invented a fanciful story about how the young man had accosted her and demanded that her husband do something. And he had no reason to really disbelieve his new wife. Marek and her were much more similar in age, and it seemed plausible to him. And he had no love for this son who he had not raised, and who had come to live in his house. The situation was like a red nail to a hammer-wielding bull, and so Lord Pengesic swung into action with his solution to all problems, one he had perfected years earlier. But he hadn't been able to act immediately, for the young man was nowhere to be found. 
Marek had been going to head home from his successful date on the sands, and like Biffa, he was positively hop, skip and jumping for joy. But on his way home, he met Uta, who had come looking for him. His friend's face was serious. It was stormy weather out on the seas, and a foreign ship had been spotted making a dangerous course. They had a job to do. Marek and Uta went full international rescue, Marek transforming from successful first date man to life-saving lifeboat man. And in a matter of minutes, him and Uta had launched their rowboat towards the large ship, rowing furiously out into the choppy sea. Using a powerful lantern, they signalled to the crew of the ship. At the last moment, they received a response from the vessel and the ship turned away from its dangerous course. They had saved all the lives on board. The two men were about to turn their little boat around, head for home, when Ufa's sharp eyes spotted something in the darkness. Movement amongst the waves. Their night was not quite over yet. The man they pulled from the sea had clearly been trying to stay afloat for a while. He was freezing cold, and once in the rowboat he passed out almost immediately. They hadn't been a moment too soon. They took the almost drowned man back to the castle. Unbeknownst to them, they had avoided the wrath of Lord Pengesic, who had worked himself into such a fury over the invented transgressions of his son that it had plain exhausted the old man, and he was now fast asleep. The rescued sailor awoke the next morning in Marrick's castle chambers. He was on a huge, comfortable bed, sheepskins covered him, and the room was gloriously warmed by a roaring fire. His rescuers watched him intently, and when his eyes opened, and when he spoke clearly, they breathed an audible sigh of relief. He was going to be okay. By his garb and his visage, it was clear the man was from a land distant of Cornwall. But he spoke their tongue well enough. The name the man went by was Arluff, which struck our hero as odd, as Arluff means lord in Cornish. But he explained that he was a trader from a far-off eastern kingdom, who sailed a ship that regularly made the voyage, so perhaps they had just assumed this was the name he used in Cornwall, knowing how anyone in Britain struggles to pronounce anything more difficult than Jack. Though actually, it was his given name. Arlef was incredibly grateful for his rescue. He told Marikanufa that he'd fallen from the top sail in the stormy weather. The ship belonged to his father, and had been heading to the busy trading port of Penzance, which was thankfully the nearest town to the castle. Well, my good man, said Marek, we've horses here, so let's get you a hearty breakfast, and then we'll ride you to town and we'll get you reunited with your father and your crew, who must be worried sick. As the two men talked, Ufa went to fetch breakfast. Lord Pangesic had apparently left very early that morning, but he found a servant, and with the man's help, rooted around in the vast pantry, and soon returned with an alliterative breakfast bonanza of beef, bread and beer. All perfect stuff for the first meal of the day before a horse ride. Not for the first time, Ufa was glad that, as a miller's son, he had such a rich and kind foster brother. And never once did he reflect upon why there might be such differences between them, or entertain ideas of overthrowing a system which led to such disparity. Such is the way of a good and loyal sidekick. As Ufa re-entered the chambers and saw Arlef and Marek engaged in conversation, he looked from one to the other, and it occurred to him that, despite the difference in skin tone, there was a certain resemblance between the faces of the two young men. An odd coincidence. Whatever. We're all kind of alike in many ways, aren't we? Two legs, two arms, that kind of thing. He gave it no further consideration. After the fine breakfast, the three of them were soon saddled and riding for Market Jew, the high street in Penzance, where the sailors' shipmates were expected to be found. Marek had suggested a quick hunt along the way, because why not? Life's for living, not just letting the people who are worried sick about you know you're safe as soon as possible, and then Arlef could take some free venison back to his crew. And so they had taken a pack of dogs with them as well. If you're going out at all, you might as well do it in style. A couple of miles from the castle, a fawn burst out of a bush and fled the men. And so they began their detour and the chase. And soon all of them and their pack of dogs were heading up Tregonic Hill. 
not being so accustomed to either hunting or this particularly independent-minded horse, Arleth was soon carried away by his steed, which raced off ahead of the other two. Up the hill it ran and it ran, almost purposefully. Arleth hung on for dear life, wishing he was back on his relatively safe ship. And then, all of a sudden, for no apparent reason, the horse slowed and stopped. Arleth found himself in the middle of a small circle of trees. In contrast to the night before, the day was clear and fine, with only a few fluffy white clouds innocently ambling about in the heavens. It therefore came as one hell of a shock when a bolt of lightning forked down from the clear blue of the sky and struck a tree just a few metres away from Arleth with the most tremendous force. Sparks flew and the trunk split clean in two. As the fractured wood creaked and fell and the sharp smell of ozone filled the surprised sailor's nostrils, a voice came from somewhere near the ground. Do not be afraid, it began, which was kind of reassuring, but a message somewhat undermined by the method of its delivery. My son, here lies the sword of your ancestors and of our kingdom. Seize it, return it from this foreign land, and win thy birthright. Looking down for the source of the voice near the fallen tree, Arleth glimpsed for a moment a large white hair, dazzling, shimmering. It looked directly at him with an expression he could have sworn was affection, before bounding away to be lost in the undergrowth. After taking some time to compose himself, he got down from the horse and headed towards the spot where the tree had fallen. And there, would you believe it, was a sword, jewelled, shining, sparkling. The very one that, unknown to him, the Lord of Pengesic had dropped here some twenty years previous. When Marik and Ufa caught up, this was all a bit much to explain to these two Cornishmen he had met only yesterday, but he did have the shining, pretty magical-looking sword, which did a lot to corroborate his unbelievable story. After the explanation was done, there didn't seem to be more plot or items to get out of this side quest, so after a moment to digest what it could all mean, they resumed their journey to Penzance. The ship was easy enough to find, and soon enough Sun had been reunited with father to delight all round. Marik and Ufa were vociferously thanked by Arleth and his father for their role in saving his life, and happy to see the two reunited, Marik and Ufa gave a wave to their new friend and headed back for the castle. Mission accomplished. And the lad even seemed to have got some kind of magic sword out of it all. What a successful day of being goddamn heroes. Aboard the ship, after all the joy of being reunited, the hugs, the crying, the discussion of how his rescue had happened, Arleth thought he'd better bring up that other issue. He pulled out the sword. It shined. His father's eyes opened wide. Where did you get that? So, I've been trying to work this out, Dad. And you see, what I believe happened was that a magical hare gave it to me. It was half buried on a hill near here, but this is no rough heathen Cornish sword. It kind of looks like a sword from Agrabah, doesn't it? But of a far finer quality than I've ever seen. Yes, it does. And the other thing, Dad. Well, I'm pretty certain that this hare, I'm pretty certain it called me son. The old sea captain sighed looked tenderly at the boy he had raised to manhood. He'd known this day would come. My lad, I was with your mother at your birth. I have raised you all these years, and you have been a fine son to me, and you will always be my son, and I hope that you will always see me as your father. But I think it's time now that I gave you some exposition. And so he explained to the boy, heir of Agrabah, what we already know, that Lord Pengesic was his real father, that the Sultana was his real mother, that Pengesic had murdered her after the war was lost, and that the sword of great power 
was widely recognised as belonging to the rightful heir of Agrabah. Oh, and all of this is why you've got a Cornish name. Your mother gave it to you expecting you to be brought up in this land, and I didn't want to change it, he said, considerately tying off one of the more minor plot threads. Hang on, said Arlof. I was rescued by young Lord Pengesic. He was a good man. If he's indeed Lord Pengesic's son, then he is your own half-brother. That's a hell of a coincidence, Dad. My own half-brother rescued me from a ship? Come on now, boy. Let's not lampshade it too much. Just roll with it. All of this was a lot to take in. Arlof stood there with the shining sword in his hand. And eventually he said, And so, what happens now? Dad? The captain beamed. Well, you have the sword, an Agrabah, mired in intrigue and misrule as it is, bit of exposition for us there, is desperately in need of a ruler, and you are the legitimate heir. Do you see where I'm going with this? I think I do. A quest to regain my birthright, discard this lowly existence I've been living, no offence dad, and somehow become ruler of the entire kingdom as has always been destined. My natural charisma, noble blood and this sword will see us through. That's it precisely. Though you know, now I realise who those men who rescued you were, there is actually something else pretty urgent you probably need to know about. This morning, when I thought I had lost you, Lord Pengesic himself came to this very ship. I didn't know it at the time. It was only after that disgusting man had left that someone mentioned who he was to me. When I think what he did to your mother... At this, the captain's face twisted in a rage. But even though I didn't recognise him, I still knew that I wanted him off the ship. For what he asked me to do. He wanted us to steal people from him. Take a person from his house. Take his own son. As if we were slavers. He offered me great wealth, as if I was as much of a moral void as he I ordered him away at once, of course. Told him if he talked like that again, I'd cast him over the side of the ship, attached to an anchor. He wants Marek kidnapped? asked Arlof. Yes, he was raving about how the boy had designs on his wife. It seemed like paranoid nonsense. If I'd known that Marek was your rescuer, I wouldn't have let him leave. But there's more, you see. He went on to talk to the captains of the other ship moored here. And I think he might have found one. Our scene opens with a different captain, of a different kind of ship. This captain was the kind of man who would refer to himself as a businessman, with an ugly grin on his face. Not a businessman in the way that he spends his days on an endless rotation of networking events, marketing conferences and product launches, travelling from city to city, spending each night in a different soulless hotel, laughing hollowly at the jokes of his colleagues over expense-funded dinners, who has his mobile phone conversations with his children before her wife he barely knows anymore puts them to sleep far away and he downs a couple of whiskies and works on the PowerPoint presentation for the investors until the early hours of the morning. Now, when this captain refers to himself as a businessman, he means he commits heinous crimes but does purely because he loves money and not from any more passionate motive like anger or evil. The nature of profit dictates how he acts, and he is every bit a puppet, dancing to the strings of supply and demands, as are those whose lives he buys and sells. Being a pirate and having recently docked at Penzance, I'm sure you'll understand if we refer to this captain as the Pirate King from now on, as piracy was indeed his line of business, and he saw himself as king. And that afternoon the Pirate King had made a very good deal indeed. Normally, Kidnapping people to be slaves involved a lot of danger for him and his crew. But today, Lord Pengesic and his wife had invited them into his impressive home, helpfully directed them to the room where the slave was to be found, helpfully directed them to the room where the slave was to be found sleeping off the exertion of a busy night. And there'd also been another man he was allowed to take as well. Now he had considered, should he take the lord and lady with him when he was there, but there was something about her that unnerved the pirate king. 
and given they were paying him to take these people, he was already profiting on the deal twice. Now, the two men had put up a fight as best as they could, but they, of course, weren't expecting anything of the sort in their own home. As they were bound, Marrick tried to tell his father that it was all lies, but his clichéd, wicked stepmother made sure the man didn't believe him. The pirate king and his crew didn't care, as the Lady of Godolphin taunted her stepson. Biffa had watched sadly as they were dragged away. The effects of the love potions were not enough to overcome Marek's revulsion when he realised she was going along with this, and his feelings for her died at that moment. The pirate king and some swarthy sea dogs he'd taken with him were now in a rowboat with their captives, heading back to their main pirate ship anchored just off the coast. From there, they'd be off to the slave markets after an easy day's work. Twilight was falling, and the pirate king was feeling pretty relaxed when he noticed another small rowboat, very definitely approaching his. He squinted in the darkness. There was a light coming from this other boat. A lantern, maybe? But a strange, oddly stylized one. For it seemed like all the world to be shaped like a sword. As they got into shouting distance, he cried, Oi, I don't know who you are, but you don't want to be messing with us. Just be on your way now. No reply came. The rowing boat got closer. He could see now that there were several men in it, armed men, one of whom definitely had a glowing sword. The slavers stopped rowing, stood up themselves. Oi, for the last time, piss off, I'm war... Arleth leapt from his rowing boat, and with one swift motion brought his sword down straight on and through the pirate king. His piratical colleagues went straight for the attack, and outnumbered as he was, Arleth should really have been dead pretty quickly. He wasn't a fighter, or he hadn't been, and none of that seemed to matter. The sword did the work for him, and in a mere moment, what had been a well-armed group of kidnappers were in pieces. Some literally, some just emotionally begging desperately for their lives. After that, it was all over very quickly. I'm not going to give you a blow-by-blow account here, but safe to say, soon, not only were Marek and Ufa well and truly rescued, but Arleth had used his newfound Jedi powers to take over not just the rowboat, but the entire pirate ship and all the considerable wealth on board. The pirates who didn't die in the short and vicious battle cast off in a small boat, and the crew from Arleth's father's boat separated to man both vessels. Because it's not really piracy if you're pirating from pirates. It's like a double negative or something. Steal all you want from them. Soon, everyone who mattered was brought up to speed with the backstory. The two sons of Lord Pengesic were united in found brotherly love, and united in hatred of their father. They considered returning to confront him and his exaggeratedly evil wife. Surely this is where this is going, yeah? But even with Arleth's sword, Marek and Ufa were somewhat afraid of Lady Godolphin and of the Witch of Fradam, whose evil magics they knew lurked somewhere behind all of this. And Arleth had a kingdom to win. And what was there really back in Cornwall for them? Possible death? So, they took the two ships, and off to Agrabah they sailed. A life of adventure beckoned for Marek and Arleth, for Ufa as a sidekick, for the captain, who it seemed was destined to play the knowledgeable mentor role, and of course for the crew of the two ships who were along with them, because they needed to earn a living. Back to Agrava, the adventuring party went. So let's leave them there, heading off to Lands of Promise. We'll return next episode. Let us linger for a while in Cornwall. You might imagine that with Marek gone, everything was coming up Lady Pengesic. Yes, she hadn't been able to marry him, but he was out of the picture now entirely, and the lands were set to be hers and her child's. And here was the problem. For this child was currently non-existent, and not threatening to pop into being any time soon. Arranging for his son to be kidnapped by pirates had not caused her husband's libido to revive. He would be dead soon, she supposed, but he stubbornly wasn't yet, and an indeterminate soon was too much for Lady Godolphin. And so began a merry game of try to poison Lord Pengesic. 
By rights, this should have been very easy to achieve, given the man's barely present mental faculties and Lady Godolphin's access to him. However, the lady had not figured on the servants, who are really not given their due in this story. It was them who had sent Marrick away as a child, kept him safe. But since then, they'd played a pretty passive role in events, as servants are wont to do. But now the entire household was appalled to discover what had happened to the younger Pengesic, who had been much loved around the castle. And to a man, they were convinced that the alleged assault had been completely fabricated. The old steward was particularly upset about the whole affair. He was a grey-haired old man who had been in service the longest, and it was he who had arranged to get Marrick taken away as a child. Luckily, his knowledge of the castle was second to none, and in particular, he knew of the many narrow secret passages in the thick castle walls, and even Lord Pengesic did not know them all as well as the steward did. And from one of these passages, the sounds from the room of the lady of the house could be heard distinctly, even when she fancied herself in complete privacy. The steward didn't know quite what he was looking for as he crept along the passageway. An admission of guilt from the lady when she was alone with her trusted servant, perhaps? But in the conversation between Biffa and her mistress, he found something else, and something equally, if not more, damning. So it was at supper the next day, when the lady poured out a goblet of wine for her husband, the steward, neatly and without arousing suspicion, switched the contents of her own goblet for that she had sought to give to Lord Pengesic. She drank heartily, encouraged her husband to drink, and he did so, knocking it back ferociously. And then she sat back, smiling, and waited. And the steward waited. And she waited. And if he was paying attention, Lord Pengesic would have noticed a considerable tension in the air. And nothing happened. And both the steward and the lady were quite confused for a while. But catching the old man's expression, the lady slowly began to piece it together. He'd switched the goblets. She tried to hold in her anger at the man. She didn't know how he knew, but she knew that he knew. She smiled. What the steward didn't know is that she prepared for this eventuality for years and had conditioned herself through magical means to ensure that the poison had no effect on her at all. He was confused as the lady smiled at him, apparently unaffected, and she looked forward to how she would revenge herself on the man very soon. But it's a series of about turns for this one, for what she didn't know is that while the old switcheroo was going on, the steward had instructed others of the staff to detain Biffa. And this they had done with great relish. And under pressure, the maid had cracked almost immediately, admitting not just her role in the poisoning, but in the fabrication of the story about Marrick. And very soon indeed, she was confessing all, not just to them, but to the whole dining room, Lord Pengesic included. The evil mother-in-law gave a screech of rage, leapt at her erstwhile ally, but she quickly found herself restrained by the servants. Old evil Lord Pengesic may not have liked his son very much, may have been happy to have him taken away, but having found out that he had done so based on a lie, by his young wife, that was too much. Lock them both away in the dungeon, he demanded, because Castle still had honest-to-God dungeons back then, and because he had no other plan. Now he had not left the castle after dark for the past twenty years or so, and always went accompanied when he did go out. But that night he was driven by rage at his betrayal, and with a new strange feeling that made him sick to his stomach. Guilt. Guilt for the son he had had kidnapped, had had unjustly taken away. Lord Pengesic felt guilty. But he had a plan. Yes, he'd get his son back. He'd just go to Penzance, and he'd find those pirates, and he'd explain the situation. Say... He wanted his son back, and maybe he'd give a little money, and that'd be fine. They would all be there, and be reasonable chaps, and it'd all be fine. So, to the astonishment of the servants, while they were busy chucking the two ladies in the dungeon, Lord Pengesic saddled up his horse, or whatever it is you do with horses, and he was off, into the night, 
towards Penzance. I'm not quite sure how he had been protected. The churchman, the castle, the arbitrary and ineffable rules supernatural beings are bound by. But he had been protected. But now, he hadn't gone very far when the adrenaline started to seep away. His horse slowed, sensing his growing unease. Maybe it could wait till morning, actually. Yes, let's go back and hang my wife. That'd sate the desire for revenge, assuage my guilty remorse. He made to turn his horse. And from the same thicket the deer that Arlof had hunted weeks before had emerged came a white hare, ghostly and unnaturally huge and seeming to grow before the terrified man. He was no Sir Bors, so he had no intention of battling the creature which had tormented him all these years. He moved as if to flee, but at that point the hare's eyes flared red flames and Pengesic's horse decided to take matters into its own hands and it turned and galloped away from the apparition at full speed. Down onto the beach and right into the sea, pursued all the way by the manifestation of the murdered Sultana. And of the rider, the horse and the phantom hare, nothing was ever seen again. When Pengesic failed to return that night, things became a little awkward for the servants in the castle, holding the mistress of the house in the dungeon and all. But they made their accusations loud and publicly, and the old steward had the support of the population local to Prey Sands. There was no doubt in their minds that it was she who had engineered the kidnapping of the young lord and the death of the old lord, her powers working even from within captivity. Eventually, events shook themselves out thus. Lady Pengesic slash Godolphin was returned to her family. The whispers of murder and witchcraft were now too strong to deny, and with her well-being and eventual rehabilitation firmly in mind, her family shut her away in their tallest, darkest tower forever. Because obviously they have more than one tall, dark tower. And that was pretty much the ignominious end to our arch-villainess, Save to add an afterword. As the years passed, the effects of being shut away, of the dark magic she had learnt, of the poison she had took to build up immunity, and of the evil in her soul, it caused her to become covered in serpent-like scales, stripping away her beauty, so the evil inside was now reflected on her exterior. In a tired, slightly problematic, evil-makes-you-ugly kind of way. And so, yes, if you're expecting an ultimate showdown between her and Marek, well, me too. But no, the unnamed steward wins this one, the servants saving the day, just as they'd done when they had got the boy adopted. And they would likely get no credit, and certainly aren't the heroes of this story. As for Biffa, well, in all the hullabaloo, she managed to slip away to her aunt, the Witch of Fradham, the shadowy evil presence who lurks in the background and no one wanted to go and confront the witch to get her. For the time being, the steward and the rest of the servants kept the castle, hoping that their young master would return. And I hope, after years of being cooped up with Lord Pengesic, they managed to let their hair down, and, you know, live a little. Freedom. No masters. Somewhere far away, the young Lord Pengesic was engaged on an adventure. We'll find out what happened to him, Ufa, and Arlov in the next episode. Oh, you know, there might even be an enchanter at some point. So, we're two parts into the Enchanter of Pengesic, and it's becoming a bit of an epic multi-generational buildings roman here, isn't it? With Lord Pengesic and his life last time, and with Marek and Arlif beginning their journey to maturity this time, we did a bit of a deep dive into Cornwall last episode, and this time I'd just like to talk about a few things that have arisen in the themes of this episode. 
We touched on the origins of this story last time, and that there's two versions of it. We're telling the longer one here, and while the story is almost certainly based on some folk tradition, this fleshed-out tale has the hallmarks of literary influences all over it, possibly introduced by Bottrell, the storyteller, despite his many protestations. But it's not quite as simple as that, because the oral and literary world shouldn't be thought of as separate. The traditions are often presented as such, to completely unrelated storytelling traditions. And this idea is often accompanied by a narrative where Victorian folklore collectors go out into the great wilderness and collect tales that have been told unaltered for centuries, by the common people, possibly even going back to Celtic times. But really, all the stories, literary and oral, were mashed together time and time again, along with songs, plays, newspaper stories, and much, much more. And that's been the case for thousands of years. People haven't lived in splendid, isolated communities. They've moved around and talked to each other, and the best stories and ideas get spread around, stuck into the great blender, and come out as new folklore or new works of literature, or performed on prestigious stages. I just wanted to emphasise or re-emphasise that point, which is really one of the main ideas I'm working to when telling tales of the British Isles. Now to turn to today's story. The story we've had today has really been about Lady Godolphin, and there's two aspects of her I'd like to discuss. Firstly, the Godolphin side. While we don't really know much about the Pengesics as were, the Godolphins are a very real and very notable Cornish family, possibly the most notable. There are two likely historical candidates for both Lord Pengesic and the Enchanter who hasn't appeared yet, because those two characters have been mixed together in the story. One of the historical candidates will be a member of the Militant family from the 1500s, and the other is Henry Pengesic from the 1300s. And one aspect that those two have in common is they're both said to have been connected by marriage to the Godolphin family. And as far as I can tell, the Godolphins have been prominent in Cornwall as far back as the 1100s, though under the name of Godolgan at that point. There's arguments about what the name really means. It might be related to the word dolphin. It could come from Godwolf, an Anglo-Saxon name. Or, in a bit of a stretch, it could be an old Cornish word meaning white eagle. Really, no one seems to know, or at least if they do, I can't find it out. But what we do know is that the Godolphin family had firmly established themselves as elite Cornish nobles by the 15th and 16th centuries. They occupied a large estate and enriched themselves through their interest in tin mining and their connection with the royal court and English politics in general. The high point of their family success was probably Sidney Godolphin, first Lord of the Treasury in the first decade of the 18th century, who was instrumental in passing the Act of Union between England and Scotland in 1707. Other notable Godolphins included a high sheriff of Cornwall, a poet, and a dean at St Paul's. There are Cornish Godolphins buried at Westminster Abbey, a Godolphin house at world-famous public school Eton College, and you can visit Godolphin Estate to this day, now owned as are many former seats of power by the National Trust. There's even a nearby village of Godolphin Cross, and the estate and village are but a few miles from Prey Sands and Pengesic Castle. The point of all this, I suppose, if there is one, is to draw attention to the fact that by the 19th century, when this tale was collected, Lady Godolphin wasn't just some random fictional character. Her presence firmly establishes the story as Cornish, and, like the use of Pengesic Castle, establishes it to some very real and very tangible history. So even though this tale isn't perhaps typically Cornish, it is very well established in the physical and the social landscape of Cornwall. However, the Lady Godolphin who appears in this story is also definitely a fictional character, because she's written as one of the most notoriously stereotypical villains in all of folk tales, one that all of you are familiar with, the Wicked Stepmother. It's a trope that exists in stories and films to this very day, and I'm going to use her presence as a bit of an excuse to talk about the idea of a Wicked Stepmother for a little bit. Now, Godolphin is not, in some ways, the usual Wicked Stepmother. Usual Wicked Stepmother stories have a young daughter of the previous marriage, and it's that daughter who is the heroine, and she attracts the wrath of the stepmother. Think Snow White, think Cinderella. 
but the plot where the stepmother wants to marry an adult son is not unknown. In fact, one of the very first wicked stepmothers we have recorded, dating from an incredible 2,400 or so years ago, is the Greek play Hippolytus, which features Phaedra, who falls in love with her stepson, and then, after she's rejected, accuses him of trying to rape her. His father finds out about it, and exiles the son. And that all sounds very, very familiar. And yes, it probably had a very direct influence on the arc of Lady Godolphin in this story. Though Phaedra kills herself after rejection, unlike Godolphin. There are other evil stepmothers who share common characteristics with Godolphin in this story. In the Northumberland ballad, The Laidly Worm of Spindleston Hugh, the evil stepmother is eventually, spoilers, turned into a toad, which is somewhat reminiscent of the scaly fate of Lady Godolphin. Poison is, of course, a commonly used tool of wicked stepmums, see Snow White, and in the Shakespeare play Cymbeline, predating the recording of this story by several centuries, we see again the old switcheroo performed, preventing an evil new wife from poisoning her husband. So yes, Lady Godolphin is a character following in a notable tradition stretching back millennia. And forgive me for pontificating a little here, but it's really easy to get interested in the origins of this idea, which seems such a staple of modern tellings of fairy tales, as presented by Disney, and also collections that you might read to children these days. And it is clearly an old idea. So where does it come from? If you go online or read academic articles, you can find a lot of both speculation and detailed research about where the idea of a wicked stepmother might arise. Statistics about how often children, in even modern times, are more likely to be abused by step-parents. Lengthy discussions about attachment bonds and the lack of them. Investigations into the historical positions of step-parents within families. There's clearly something a bit more than fiction going on here. Primogeniture, that is the right of the firstborn son to inherit his father's kingdom or estate, has led to well-recorded situations of second wives being intensely concerned for their own futures and the futures of their own children, who are disinherited from birth. You can see this situation playing out across the annals of European history. And it's no great leap from the hostility that this causes within families to the trope of the evil stepmother. And so this could be one reason that it's become such a well-known representation. And it's a representation not just in fairy tales collected by, say, the Brothers Grimm, but also from many others across Europe and, actually, the wider world. So it's an old story with its roots in real family dynamics, the bad effects of which were amplified by the social systems that existed at the time. And yet, there's another angle to this. Because there aren't just evil stepmothers. Take the character of the evil queen in Snow White, who is the archetypal wicked stepmother in the modern imagination. And also take the character of the wicked stepmother in Hansel and Gretel. Well, neither of those were originally stepmothers. In the tales originally collected by the Grimm's, they were wicked mothers. In later editions, the brothers Grimm changed them to stepmothers, probably to tone down the horror of mothers wanting to kill their children. But it was the brothers Grimm who did that. So making them stepmothers was a much more modern thing. And wicked mothers pop up in many other tales. It's not the stepmother, it's the mother in the juniper tree, for instance. Or in the rather unusual Scottish tale Gold Tree and Silver Tree, in which, as an aside, the evil mother is defeated by her daughter, her daughter's husband, and his other wife, in a kind of badass menage a trois situation. And all of those three get to live happily ever after. And this is where all the theorising stepmothers falls down a bit. Because we must begin to consider that, though the roots of those stories might be old, the prevalence of this in modern media might actually owe more to a modern unwillingness to display a different side of motherhood. So it's not so much that the evil stepmother is a modern creation, as it is that the evil parental figures in folk and fairy tales have kind of not made it into modern representations. These tales used to have a wide range of evil parents, and often there was a sexual motive, as there kind of is with Lady Godolphin. But when stories were sanitised and made for children, these elements fell away. And so what remains, and what we know now, is the evil stepmother who hates her stepdaughter. But stepmothers can rest assured that in the past, every parent was a potential killer.
And anyway, I've rabbited on about this for quite some time now. And speaking of rabbits, let's just briefly return to my impressions of the story to round this off. As I said last episode, one thing I really like about this tale is the variety of themes, and that's only increased now. There was the evil lord and his betrayals, the wars, the ghost last time, and this time there's the evil stepmother, the son reclaiming his birthright, the sultana winning through, and then the actual pirates just thrown into the mix to make this an honest-to-god adventure story. It's got everything, and there's even more coming next episode. There's even, and I cross my heart and hope to die, but there's even an enchanter. If you've managed to stick it out this long and are still listening, then I hope you'll also want to join us for the conclusion in the next episode. And if that's not already released, then it should be in just a few days' time. You can follow Tales of Britain and Ireland podcast on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. There's also a website, talesofbritainandireland.com, where there's a page for each episode which contains more information, including illustrations, asides and recaps, along with other additional bits and pieces to explore. The intro music was written and performed by Alice Nichols, and you can find all the other musical credits on the episode page on the website. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please do share it with others or give it a review, as those really are the best ways to help us out. You can also join Tales of Britain and Ireland on Patreon to get extra members' episodes. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me again soon. Bye.